After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head -head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. Welcome to another episode of the David and Goliath podcast. I'm attorney Matt Dolman, managing partner of the Dolman Law Group, here with my uh, esteemed business partner, Stanley Guype. And we have, we're lucky today, we have a, a real legit trial lawyer, aside from Stan. This guy's better looking, though. His name's Brendan Lupidin. He's out of uh, Western Pennsylvania, out of Pittsburgh. We don't get a lot of Pittsburgh guys on here, and I fucking hate Pittsburgh simply because I'm a University of Miami guy, I'm an ACC guy, and Pitt usually kicks our ass. Not a big Charlie Patrick guy, but I'll, I'll give you the fact that you guys just have a pattern or doozy just has owns us and I'll just leave it alone from there. So I'm, I'm jealous of, of people from Pitt because you generally have much better teams hockey wise, football wise, and um, I'll shut up from here. So we brought Brendan on this morning. Stan wanted to discuss a little bit about uh, business litigation and MedMal. Stan? Yeah, you know, Brendan, I'm glad you came on because we get a lot of attorneys on here and we do a lot of stuff on medical malpractice, a lot of stuff on negligence claims. And really, it's the damages that change. The fact patterns tweak a little bit. We don't have anyone on that's really talked about contingency fee business litigation. And I take a little bit of an interest in that because I was saying to Matt earlier, it's like everyone, you know, everyone has business litigation issues. Everyone has breach of contract issues. Most of us don't address it. Right. I mean, how many times do you buy something with a three year warranty that breaks in six months and you just throw it away because it's a you know, it's a ten dollar item? I mean, technically, that's a breach of contract issue not worth pursuing. But on these bigger issues, right, you know, if you get in an auto accident, no one wonders what you're supposed to do. OK, no one wonders how to get an attorney. It's almost hard to avoid an attorney in that scenario. When you got a business contract issue that you can't afford to litigate. The walls can feel like they're closing in on you a little bit more, and the options may not be as obvious. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it it's kind of a sort of a two-way street of how do, you know, all of us as more toward a, you know, sort of a personal injury, contingency fee lawyers, how do you find those clients on the business litigation side? And on the on the other side, it's, you know, the the business entities that are you know, potentially great candidates for a contingency scenario, it's literally like a, uh, it's like a foreign language to them, the, the idea of contingency work. So it's sort of a fluke a lot of the times that we pick up business litigation and we mostly do medical malpractice. We do, you know, some, some catastrophic personal injury stuff as well. But, you know, for me, variety is the spice of life. And so have had an opportunity to make relationships with what I find are the, these mid-size typical business transaction type law firms. And they have all these different clients, all these different business clients that are just, all they know is the, the hourly format. And if you can just plant the bug in the ear of some of the attorneys over there to say, hey, you know, if you ever have a client who's got a, a legitimate claim but for one reason or another, the idea of, you know, a big upfront retainer or just high, you know, consistent hourly fees that they're never going to get reimbursed is not appealing to them. I'm here or other firms like me are here as, as a possible option, a contingency option. And what I've found is some of these clients, when they're, you know, it's pitched to them by a lawyer, one of these firms, 
you know, they're bowled over. You know, I mean, they, they literally can't, they can't believe that a lawyer would take their case and they're like, wait a second. So you'll do all the work, you'll do everything, invest the money. And obviously, you know, everything depends on the type of agreement that you, you sign with them. And then you just get a percentage of it at the end. I mean, that, generally speaking, they've been just shocked that, that uh, firms like us would do that. And, um, and so it's worked out really well. So I think the key is first, like, just getting into the ear of the lawyers that they're more likely to be speaking with. Because I don't know how you're ever going to really be able to market to businesses in general, uh, you know, that you could ever, you know, hey, if you got to breach a contract, you know, call us for uh, contingency work. I just don't think it works that way. So I think the play from a marketing perspective is to, you know, make relations, uh, relationships with lawyers at these, you know, mid-size business firms, the, the kind of places that would never hire me back in the day. And then uh, just, you know, continue to remind them that, that you're an option there. And, uh, and we've had a handful of different cases that have spun off. And, you know, you got to be very choosy, I think, with the cases that you take on, you know, like any other case, but you really have to scrutinize them. What you also find is that the business owners are very savvy. You know, they're, they're smart. They, they really analyze the, the, you know, the agreement that you provide them. They're, they're often trying to come up with, you know, different alternatives and, and so forth. And I can um, talk to you about a bit of a pitfall. I mean, it's kind of a, a good pitfall to be in, but um, on on one of the first business litigation cases I ever handled, if you guys uh, want to hear about it. Yeah. All right. So, you know, as a more of a poppy lawyer, this is, uh, you know, I'm maybe six, seven years out of school. A, a local company uh, just gets completely screwed over on a product. And, and the gist of the case is that for a lot of products that are sold in the United States, you have to have uh, certain testing certifications. So you have to take your product, you have to have it examined by a third-party testing agency. And on the back of pretty much every product you see, smoke alarms, you know, toasters, stereo equipment, you'll see stamps on the back of them. Sometimes it's CSA, uh, UL, you'll see is a super common one. And then there's another company called Intertech, which is a huge player. And uh, in my estimation, it's kind of like the discount uh, third-party testing agency. So this company has these space heaters. They're vent-free wall heaters. They land a big contract. The heaters are manufactured in China. But in order to continue selling them, they've got to get approval by third-party testing agency. Here comes uh, Intertech. They test them in China. And the company gets the seal of approval. These things are good to go. Okay, you can sell them. So they start selling them. They're selling like gangbusters at Ace Hardware, Home Depot, et cetera. And one of the competitors of the company that I represent gets pissed. And so they buy one, they look at them, and they figure out that, in fact, the product, these, these vent-free wall heaters do not meet the safety certification. And so then they report it, they tell everybody, and Intertech goes back and looks at them and says, oh, yeah, you're right, they, they aren't. And they just basically throw their hands up and say, oh, sorry about that, too bad. And it costs the company in question a lot of business. And they go, the, you know, the owner of the company, you know, a good friend of mine eventually goes and talks with uh, business lawyers and, and they're just kind of not interested and, and he's not really in a position to pay significant hourly fees. So the only pitfall I would say is that, you know, this was early in my career. So what I did was I signed a 40% for the first $500,000 recovery, but then it tiered down precipitously after the first $500,000 because I'm thinking to myself, hey, you know, if we got a $500,000 recovery, that would be incredible. You know, that, that would just be amazing. And hey, everything after that's gravy. Oh, man, $6.3 million? Yeah, and, and with interest, there was another basically million on top. So, I mean, it, it wound up settling because it went up to the Third Circuit and was upheld. And, I mean, it was like seven-something at the end of the day. 
And after, uh, I think it basically the, the overall fee was, you know, wound up being about 11% or 12% instead of the 40%. But, you know, I mean, it, it was a lesson to learn and it's something to consider as us attorneys. If you're interested in, in looking at business litigation, you have to, I mean, you have to kind of plan for the possibility of a great outcome. Uh, but also I think at the same time, be, you know, willing to accept, like, do I want the bigger chunk up front versus, you know, I'll take the risk that it's less likely to get that massive recovery and, you know, you can live with it. And believe me, I was, you know, it, it was a great day just to get that verdict from everything that we went through. But definitely something if, if you're a, you know, personal injury contingency type lawyer, like, like most of us are, and you're looking to get into that business litigation, you, you just as much as the other side has to really think about how do you want to structure uh, your contingency fee, because a lot of times, you know, savvy uh, people on the other side want something a little bit different, and they're they're good negotiators on that point. Yeah, interesting. We didn't start hearing about uh, contingency fee business litigation until probably 2011, 2012, when Morgan & Morgan started, their, I guess it's their small business group. And, and I agree with you, by the way, advertising to personal injury clients is a lot different than advertising to businesses. Probably looked at as a little lowbrow. So relationships really have to start at the business level and be very granular of who you meet. Um, I always wondered how you get you know that type of practice to take off, but we're here in Florida where we just got slammed with tort reform, and it's awful. I mean, forever Florida lawyers are pounding their chest about their our big verdicts. I know before we got on, we were talking about Los Angeles County and the runaway verdicts there. Florida was a close second, and now we're one of the worst states. And this might be an area we start to segue into over the next, you know, couple of years. There's not a lot of lawyers that do this on a contingency fee outside of like the massive firms like a Morgan that does it in a Walmart model, well, if you will. So I'm curious. I mean, you guys are are down in the uh, the epicenter of uh, Morgan and Morgan and you know territory, and yeah, they're up now in Pittsburgh and and causing a lot of uh, yeah, yeah uh, a lot of a lot of discussion amongst the uh, you know the, those large the larger you know PI shops around town, but. I remember hearing John Morgan talk a while ago about the importance of, you know, planning for black swan events and diversifying your practice and so forth. And he was really bullish. I mean, this was probably seven, eight years ago on that, you know, contingency fee uh, business litigation, but I haven't seen how they market for that. You know, it's not like I've seen billboards or, or advertisements, you know, directed specifically to business owners. I don't know if you guys have in that regard. No, it's almost like cross-selling. They uh, put out, you know, they're, they're everywhere. Yeah, no doubt. They're omnipresent. Mm -hmm. So in their newsletters, if you look at, you know, and he does an email blast also of over 100,000 subscribers, he mentions the business litigation in there, just like he mentions the mass tort, but you don't see them advertising for either. It just comes in ancillary to their personal injury practice, if you will. Yeah, I was going to say, he has run a few spot commercials that I've seen where he's, you know, really advertising for the contingency fee business litigation, but they're really, really sporadic compared to with the other stuff he runs. My question to you a little bit, like, if someone comes in auto accident and says, hey, I'm rear-ended by a target truck and I'm paralyzed, well, you, you don't have to do much investigation to know that's a claim you want to get out there, you want to sign up, you want to take, and you want to run with it. No doubt. Okay, someone comes with you and says, hey, somebody did a bad job, you know, testing my space heaters in China, and now I can't sell them here. How do you prepare, like, what do you do to get up to speed to be able to make that sort of first decision on a case? Because it's not going to be quite as intuitive as, you know, your cookie cutter auto stuff, so right? So I agree 100%. And I think that my practice is predominantly medical malpractice, I'd say probably 75 to 80% of our, of, of what we do is medical malpractice. And 
MedMal is uh, is sort of analogous, I think, to the investigation that you have to do in the business litigation type cases because it's you really have to do your legwork. You know, as you just said, target truck smashes in the back of a vehicle. You you pretty much know for certain that's a great case that you're going to jump on no matter what. MedMal cases, you've really got to do your due diligence. I mean, there's the occasional case if it's a you know wrong level surgery wrong body, body part or just some, you know, total catastrophe, then you know for certain. But almost all the cases, we have to really dig in, we have to consult with experts, and we got to start with the records. You know, the, the, the medical records are the bedrock foundation piece of evidence in med mal cases. Similarly, in business cases, you've got to collect all the documents and you've got to, you know, keep digging in with the client, you know, Give me the contract. Give me all the emails. You got to do the email searches. You have to go through everything and and really piece it together to make sure that you have, you know, all your ducks in a row. Basically, I'll give you a, you know two examples. So, on the space heater case, we had to go and then have the client go back and request all these different documents from Intertech. You know, all the testing documents, and then we would read them, and there would be a reference to another document that was you know a part of it that they didn't have. They had to request that. And you had to just keep tugging on all these different threads until you really felt that you kind of had the universe of documents that the case was about and then start to put it together. There were some very egregious things in that particular case, for instance, and, and a lot of it had to do with language barriers. So you had Chinese, like in Guangzhou, China, engineers interpreting English written standards to the products in question. And they were literally testing this guy's wall heaters as if they were uh, grills, like food grills. And it literally said they're like open top grill, you know what I mean? All this like ridiculous stuff that just had that kind of shock factor that I was like, I think, I think there's something here. In another example, the truck uh, company, local truck company uh, gets an excess verdict. And they go and talk to a, a local business group about, you know, the implications for them, you know, ruined the company. I mean, just really, they were running on such a tight margin at the trucking company, this excess verdict essentially, you know, ran the company out of business. And so the proprietor, former attorney himself, goes to his, you know, longtime business, uh, uh, you know, law firm and says, hey, I've got this case, will you guys handle it? And they're like, eh, you know, it's going to be, you know, here's our proposal, Here's the retainer. Here's the hourly. He said, I'm really not in a position to take that on right now, given, you know, that's kind of the reason why I'm talking to you is because I've been financially ruined. They say, hey, we know this guy, Brendan. He does this kind of work on a contingency. You might want to talk to him. So we talk. Again, have to dig into all these records. We go out to the trucking company. We dig through all these boxes of papers of different documents that they would gotten from their insurance company, all the different, you know, underwriting policies and all this different stuff all the communications, you have to gather all of that just to make sure you really have, you know, all your ducks in a row before you, you get going on the case, because there are so many potential pitfalls in them. You got to be really certain that uh, you're going to have a pretty strong case before, before you move on it. Let's dovetail for a second to MedMal. So, and, and to educate those who are listening to this or who will eventually listen to this, last year as a firm, we took in 3,700 MedMal wow. leads. Guess how many med mal cases were? I mean, if up? it's anything like our case, our, our situation, Matt, I'm going to guess like 95% of those were not cases, something in that realm. More. We signed up. Uh, when I say we yeah. signed up, we don't do med mal yeah. here. So we refer it out. Um, yeah. Seven cases were I signed mean, up. And that's the right ratio, honestly. So one in 530 or 540, if you're a math geek, were signed up. That's 
I just want to make sure people understand it's going to be best coming from you. How difficult one med mal cases are because uh, the, you know seventy percent of med mal cases, at least here in Florida, end up as yep. defense verdicts. Two, it's not generally medical malpractice. It's um, it's hard to prove a doctor truly deviated from the normal standard of care or the expected standard of care of a like kind physician. Often it's just bad outcomes. I have a, a lot of thoughts on this. So number one, and I think it's a truism. People believe, they want to believe, they should believe that overall doctors are, are, you know, nurses are trying to do the right thing. I mean, they're, they're literally, they're trying to provide the best care possible. Now, does that mean egregious mistakes don't happen? No, they, they happen all the time. But that overall belief system, and not just the, the truism that, that, I mean, my dad's a physician, actually, and I, and I know that, that, you know, doctors and nurses are trying to care. But people also want to believe in a just, you know, a just and safe world. They do not want to live in a world where this horrible thing that happened to this person could just randomly happen to themselves as well. There's the there's cognitive dissonance there of, of imagining that, you know. So so it just makes the the hurdle that our clients have to overcome to prove the case to show that you know this was a really you know unskilled or a really uncaring uh, doctor in this particular situation is is just incredibly difficult. You know, not to circle back to Eminem again, but you know, Keith Mitnick has has said before that of all the cases he tries, the tobacco, the tobacco litigation is the you know that's the most difficult machine case to try against, but the most difficult cases to win are medical malpractice cases for purposes of getting a verdict. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you really have to limit the cases to that real outliers, catastrophic damages, or you know, I mean, everything's kind of on a, uh, you know, like a, a related continuum. So if you have just slam dunk admitted liability, then you may, you know, be able to take a case that doesn't have like absolutely catastrophic or, or wrongful death type injuries. But otherwise, you pretty much have to start your analysis with massive damages, horrible, horrible outcome, and then reverse engineer and then look back and say, okay, now was there something that could be said that this wasn't just a consequence of the illness or the medical condition or so forth? And then you, you know, backtrack into, you know, is there a legitimate theory of liability here? I think that's kind of the way you have to look at it rather than the other way. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's just, uh, you're going you're gonna to go out of business quick if you take, you just take on too many, you know, questionable med mal cases because they fight them like crazy. It's difficult to uh, convince, you know, the most people that um, medical profession was not doing what they were supposed to do under the circumstances. So we have a $10.8 million verdict on a very obscure case. Yep. This involved a, uh, a reaction, allergic reaction, if you will, uh, during an MRI procedure. Tell us about this case. It's usually the obscure, weird, strange factual scenarios that create these humongous verdicts. If you ever look at big verdicts on different law, law firms, especially MedMal, it's always, it's not the stuff you would ever market for if a MedMal case, you wouldn't expect that. It's odd. I've never seen that factual scenario. Well, and haven't you guys also seen this in almost any of your cases where that that result in a great verdict? It's almost always because somebody on the other side misassessed something. They misevaluated the case. They got locked in on a certain view in early in the case, and they didn't change it with new information or things. You know, there was some big misevaluation, and this this case was a perfect example. But there's something else here, you know, for the MedMal or the potential MedMal practitioners that I think is, is really important to keep in mind for MedMal cases, okay? So the way I do focus groups all the time, and what I find is that, and I think it's a legitimate, um, it's a legitimate thought, 
is that most people are looking, okay, well, what actually caused this person's injury? What actually caused this person to die? So let's think about the example of a um, delayed diagnosis of lung cancer case. And I'll get back to the verdict in just a moment, but it, it ties directly to this. So you have a case where the radiologist just blatantly missed a treatable mass on an x-ray and the patient goes on for you know no treatment, delayed diagnosis two plus years. When it's finally diagnosed, it's metastatic, it's untreatable, and they die from the cancer, okay? So jury goes back and they look at it and they say, well, you know, that person, whether, they, whether it's kept out or it gets in the case, so they were, they were probably a smoker. They're either going to assume it or they're going to learn that the person was a smoker. So they're going to say, okay, that, that plaintiff partly caused this to happen by smoking. Everybody knows smoking's bad. It can cause lung cancer. Number two, they're going to think to themselves, that person didn't die. The doctor didn't kill them, okay? The tumor killed them. And it, it's, a, it's a simple distinction, but people think about that. And so you have to overcome and show that, no, that I'll use sort of the dominoes with the hand blocking the dominoes and, and show that that proper care would have prevented this from happening. But the underlying concept makes it really difficult that in those cases where there wasn't a surgical intervention, they cut the wrong thing, they operate on the wrong body part, they physically actually cause the harm as, as opposed to preventing it, which the vast majority of med mal cases are some version of failure or delay to, di you know, to diagnose in, in almost every setting. That's like 80% of the types of med mal cases that you know, you'll, you'll see move forward. Those are just naturally tougher cases because there was an underlying medical condition that was at play and typically played a big role in the terrible outcome, not just the doctor's actions or omissions. Which brings me back to why I felt that, that you know, th this contrast case that we tried in this outlying Blair County a couple of years ago during the heart of the pandemic, actually, one of the factors why we won the case. So the short of it was, it was... Uh, early 40s-year-old guy, bad back, but otherwise overall healthy, had a good job, and goes in for a routine MRI for his back just to check, see, you know, does he have a, a disc herniation or a bulge or something that can be treatable to explain his, his back injuries. And he goes in and they, uh, as they oftentimes do for a lot of radiology studies, they inject him with contrast. And it's well known that in a very tiny percentage of the population, people will have an allergic reaction to the contrast, and they'll have an anaphylactic reaction. You've got to pre be prepared as a hospital, of course, to treat that patient, you know, and, and anaphylactic reactions are typically very treatable. It's no different than my son has a peanut allergy, for example. You know you've got the EpiPen, you know, you know what signs and symptoms to look mm -hmm. for, you know you got to timely treat and get him over to the, you know, hospital if the Epi's not seeming to work and so forth. So this place, they inject him, he has an obvious allergic reaction because of, you know, missteps that had occurred, you know, in the years prior. They have no medications nearby. They have no proper system for notifying people to come and help. And so he basically just is caused to have a reaction. Nobody treats him. He lays on the bed and eventually uh, arrests in the MRI table before he's eventually people finally get there and take him down to the emergency room. But by then you know, while they're ultimately able to resuscitate him, he suffers a pretty significant brain injury, not able to work. He's kind of like the guy from Memento, if you saw that movie, where he has mm -hmm. essentially memory for five minutes. And so you meet him, he's like your best buddy, seems totally normal. You leave the room, you see him a little bit later, he has no idea who you are. His long-term memory, has old memories, but he can't form essentially new memories. Very eerily 
uh, reminiscent of that. So, you know, I can explain some of the other, you know, they, they had policies that said they were supposed to have everything to treat anaphylactic reactions. They had a call bell in the MRI suite that was supposed to, if you hit it, sound an alarm in the emergency room, but nobody had been trained in the emergency room about the alarm. So when they heard it, they didn't know what it was. They, there was a doctor literally testified that he had his head up in the ceiling trying to find where the sound was coming from because he'd never heard it before. Just this real circus. And, you know, my client, unfortunately, uh, you know, paid a very significant price for their negligence. There was a lot of different factors that played into why that case was successful. But one of them that I focused on was, and even though this wasn't negligent, they were the ones that caused his reaction. They injected him with the medication and they didn't prepare themselves for what they knew was a potential dangerous condition, which was an anaphylactic reaction to the medicine. And so even though it wasn't, they weren't negligent for, you know, administering contrast, I felt that it played a big role in the jury believing, well, hey, you caused this to this person. This was not just some, the person that had a heart attack because they had longstanding atherosclerosis of their heart. This guy was not going to have this reaction, but for you injecting him, you knew there was a risk of injecting him. And then because of gross policy violations, you did not intervene to keep his reaction from hurting himself. So with you guys getting as many, you know, calls as you do on MedMal cases, I would suggest putting that in as sort of like a, as a criteria, as you think through it, is, is there something where the, the hospital system, the doctor, the nurse directly contributed to the injury as a part of just not intervening or doing something in time or the right way? I don't know if I've, I've gotten that across, but I just really think it's a, it's a, it's a really important concept to keep in mind when you're thinking about taking a med mal case and, and how you work the case up. It's an interesting verdict. I mean, the closest I saw to that is, um, it's not, I guess the analogy fails, but it was a $31 million verdict out of Vegas by a lawyer named Christian Morris. I don't know if you know her. And I think I saw that. That was like a couple years ago, A couple ago, years right? ago, the, uh, the- That was an allergic reaction case. Allergic reaction case. The medics fell to in their jump bag. Um, they eliminated a certain- uh, I would assume it was EpiPen, but something from their bag that was, uh, they saved, I just looked it up, $2.42 a bag by eliminating this, and somebody had an anaphylactic reaction and died as a result, and they didn't have the life-saving medication. And Vegas, by the way, when you compare verdicts, that's another, I wouldn't call it a plaintiff hellhole, but it's close to it. It's uh, The verdicts coming out of Vegas are disproportionate to what we see everywhere else in the country. Having said that, she's a great lawyer, but Somewhat similar. Well, you've got uh, Sean, or uh, you got Ben Cloward and Sean Claggett out there. You know that. Have, yeah, yeah, just all gotten some monster verdicts. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think the it was a confluence of things. And the interesting thing on on that case in um, in uh, in Blair that we got that verdict on was zero offer. It was a it was a zero offer case, and uh, my partner Greg, who had really worked the case up, you know, asked me to come in and try it with him towards the end. And I'm looking at the case. I'm like, this case is good. This is a really strong case. And you know, but I think you guys know as as well as anybody, you still have to get a, a lot of, a lot of luck, a lot of good fortune has to fall your way to win a verdict, even with a bad analysis on the other side. I think they made a horrendous analysis on not trying to offer something because the family would have taken a fraction of of what uh, of what we ultimately got, you know, to settle the case. But um, one of the tricks of that case is I'm, I'm sure you guys have handled, you know, these different, you know, TBI type cases and so forth where your client looks sure. fine, look totally fine. 
And uh, maybe they're even- Those are the toughest cases. They're, they're so hard, 100%. I, I, you know, we were just talking, we, we got a decent verdict on a concussion case recently, but we had good objective evidence, but there's still that worry. And I think it kills a lot of those cases when the person looks fine, okay? That was a big problem in that, that, uh, that contrast reaction case because our client, like I said, if you met him, looked totally normal. And he could converse pretty normally. You know, he, he even, uh, I'm trying to remember if he did a deposition. He didn't do a deposition, but he could have for sure. So defense counsel, of all people, moved to preclude him from the courtroom because they were worried he had had some sort of explosive outburst at time because of his brain injury. And the lawyer, you know, understandably thought that, you know, it just would be too risky to have our client. Maybe they were worried that if he had an outburst, it would make it, you know, it, it would underscore his injury. But meanwhile, that was the greatest, you know, one of the greatest things for us because now our, my client can't even be there. And we can, you know, credibly say to the jury that, you know, it was decided by all parties that, you know, essentially our client was not well enough to be in the courtroom. And now, you know, instead of they see the pictures, but they in their mind, they're imagining you know, oh boy, like this guy really must be a mess and, and really needs a lot of help. And now they're just hearing all the different anecdotal stories from different members of his life and so forth, you know, that really underscored, I think, the, the extent of his, of his injuries. That was a little bit of a miscalculation by the defense. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I mean, but again, you got to, you, you have to get lucky. Those, those different pieces have to kind of. I don't believe in luck. <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit of luck in everything, sure, in happenstance of why you're in that circumstance, but, you know. No, you make your own the luck. old saying is, you make your own luck. Luck is where opportunity meets hard work, yeah. and you guys clearly are good lawyers. And you're young. I mean, you're a young guy. I'm 46. I'm not sure how, I'm how old you are. You're in the same age. You, Matt. I'm the same yeah, and you're a member of ABOTA. So for those who don't know what ABOTA is, that's the American Board of Trial Advocates. And uh, that's a pretty significant distinction for trial lawyers across the country. That's um, the milestone, I think, that every big trial lawyer um, wants to achieve towards um, being a member of uh, that organization, which basically says that you are a preeminent lawyer in your area, that you have uh, tried a lot of cases. Yeah, I, well, I mean, just not to go into a whole backstory, but I when I, when I first started out, I, I started at kind of a, a circus-like firm and, uh, you know, wasn't making any money, but quickly saw the value was that I could try as many sort of bad cases as I could get my hands on. And so I got to try dog after dog after dog and, you know, got my ass handed to me many, many, many times. But, you know, improved just comfort level with that feeling of being in trial and so forth. And, um, you know, realized I was making progress and eventually was going to, you know, was going to get there. And actually, it, it's funny that we go down that path because the, uh, th that, that heater case, uh, which was like 11 years ago, was my first really big verdict. And uh, I just remember it was like, I was like, when they read the verdict off, I was, uh, I, I started crying. I mean, I kind of cringe now thinking about that, but I was just so, like I, I like I had lost, I mean, I'd probably by that time, at, like tried 20 something cases at that point to verdict and, you know, had a couple just measly, you know, verdicts. I had a, you know, couple, maybe one or two six figure, ver low, low, low six figure verdicts and stuff. And, uh, and to finally get a, what I, felt was a good one and a, you know, just a really brutally fought case. It was exciting in that sense. So. It's a huge verdict. Yeah. Were you crying? Was that for satisfaction yeah. or for the 11% fee? <laughs> I, didn't re <laughs> I didn't realize. I hadn't done the calculations. I was, I cried later. <laughs> Again, when I realized. You still did very well on no, that case. No, no, it all worked out well. I mean, you said you'd be happy if you got over $500,000, so your fee was close. To, I mean, it's, it's still a great fee. It's, that's a great job. Without a doubt. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not, not crying. 
Well, a big portion of that was some punitive damages, correct? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it, most of it. I think it was uh, it was something like seven fifty was compensatory, and then five something five plus was yeah something. You no, know, it was like it was like one point two five was um, was compensatory, and then five million punitives. The brutal part about it, it was a two day trial. The jury deliberated for two and a half days, and it was just it was Ooh. sickening. And they had question after question after question. And, you know, you couldn't, sometimes you get the questions and you're like, oh, we're like, for instance, in the contrast case, the first question was, can we see the life care plan? And the second question was, can we have a calculator? I'm like, okay, I'm feeling good about this one. But uh, yeah, that one was just, uh, it it was gut wrenching, you know, to wait, but it was worth it, you know, And, and we all have stories to tell now. So how's your client sitting there? You know, he's a businessman. He's not necessarily like an injured person looking to be, I mean, this has to be like a a windfall for him all of a sudden. It was a windfall for him. But the funny thing that I find with business clients is that, I don't know if they're more pragmatic than me or what, but they are very sort of matter of fact when the case settles or the verdict comes in. Like he was obviously, you know, overjoyed, but he was much more like, well, of course, you know, they totally, they totally screwed me over. And I'm sitting there thinking like, you don't realize how unusual this is. Like, this is crazy and so forth. But I, you know, on a number of other cases, subsequently, the, the clients were very appreciative. They were very appreciative of a job well done and, you know, that we had worked hard on the case. But it was much more like on to the next business transaction or aspect of the business and so forth. So, you know, the client in the Space Theater case has parlayed that um, uh, verdict into a lot of great things. So it's good to see that way. But it's funny. I think the reaction from people, person, you know, people that have been personally injured, physically injured, is uh, you see a lot more of that. Well, hopefully, you know, the, the joy and, and the, the tears and so forth when, when the resolution of the verdict comes in. What does the next five years look like for you? Because you built up a nice reputation as a trial lawyer. Your practice has expanded. You've had a lot of recent successes. Are you going to stay just in Pennsylvania? And this isn't a pejorative question. It's not. There's no bad, you know, answer to this. Are you going to become a national trial lawyer where you pro hoc into different states and want to take looks at the biggest cases? And because there's a lot of guys that do that. So you know, some of the even names you mentioned earlier, like the Claggets and Clowards, they'll. They'll pro hoc into different states and based on referral relationships and have a local council taking a small fee and they can take a look at cases anywhere in the country. It gives you an ability to reach anywhere. So I've thought a lot about that. And, you know, you never say never or, or make uh, absolutes. However, probably seven, eight years ago, I started to think to myself, like, oh, maybe I'll be one of these national type lawyers and and uh, jet set around the, the U.S. trying cases and so forth. And I got into, uh, it, it was actually that uh, the, the trucking uh, business case, and it had me taking depositions all over the country. And this was before the real advent of Zoom. And I quickly realized that I did not like being away from home, uh, being away from my wife, my kids. I just not designed to travel like that. And and that probably in of itself was the, the number one um, decision factor that we pretty much focus our practice on, you know, from Harrisburg to the west of Pennsylvania. That's about as far east as we'll go. Other cases we're going to refer, and I wrestle with the idea. I mean, you guys are, you know, just clearly, you know, bigger and bigger, bigger. Thirty-seven hundred potential leads for medical malpractice in of itself. I mean, that that uh, that makes my head spin. You know, to to imagine the volume that you guys are able to generate. We're small, and I think we're probably going to stay small. I got my partner. 
Uh, we have a wonderful associate bringing on, you know, another young lawyer. I mean, it's the, you know, $64,000 question, you know, do you grow? Do you stay the same? Do you stay really small and so forth? And I'm sort of looking at the the legal, you know, landscape these days. And it strikes me, you know, for, for Pittsburgh in particular, that, you know, staying small, lean and mean is probably, you know, especially factoring like what I, my life balance and so forth, like that's probably where I want to stay. And if people want to, you know, bring me in to try a case within counties surrounding, I'm happy to do that and so forth. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I necessarily aspire to, to get too big. So you'll go to Philly though. You'll go to the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas to go try a case. You will. I mean, right? if somebody wanted me to go try it, I mean, if I had the right kind of case. But honestly, Matt, that's it's getting a little little far from home for me. I'm telling you, I, I'm a, I'm a homebody, and uh, I hear you. But I do. I mean, then Zoom came in, and I, you know, then you can take. Uh, I, I pretty much do all my my depositions via Zoom and so forth. So. You know, I, I, that's why I, I say, see the verdicts coming out of Philadelphia. I'm like, oh, my God. No, they're they're insane. I mean, there was a hundred and eighty nine million dollar birth injury verdict last year. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that uh, again, I mean, I anything's possible, I suppose. But, you know, I think a good example is uh, Shane Inspector, you know, super famous yep. lawyer from Klein Inspector, mega super firm from Philadelphia. He had the, you know, the largest verdict in Allegheny County, which was $105 million for this, you know, electrocution case, which was, you know, obviously a fantastical outcome, a lot of punitive damage and so forth. But pretty much everybody believed that, you know, had that case tried in, in Philadelphia, it probably would have been like a billion dollar verdict, you know. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot to be said for that, but I'm okay just being uh, the, the local Allegheny County, Pittsburgh uh, lawyer, keeping it close to the vest. You seem to be doing fine. Are you going to expand to any type of product liability or mass torts, or are you going to keep it to where it is right now with business and med mal? So variety is the spice of life. So I, I mean, I'm trying a quote, uh, good slip and fall up in Erie County in September. So I like to try a smattering of different cases. We do, we do product defect cases. We'll do medical def you know, defect cases if it's the right case, but we keep a pretty low volume of cases, try to keep the cases sizable, large value where we can really pour ourselves into the case to maximize the outcome for the for the client and really feel like we're, you know, bringing a lot of value to just a small number of cases. For me, I discovered that I I it just don't do well with a volume practice. My prior firm many many years ago was much more volume and I just uh, you know, felt like I was constantly just kind of paddling trying to keep my head above water and not really providing as much help, you know, but it was when I'd find that one case here, the, you know, diamond over here that just kind of connected me and I'd really go all in on it that for me, it just resonated more like, I don't know, with, I guess my simple mind. I need to have like one or two things to focus on. I can't balance too many, uh, spin too many plates, I guess. Gotcha. Well, I appreciate having you today. I mean, that pretty much wraps up our discussion, I mean, I can keep you on for another half hour going, bouncing off topics off you, and we're probably going to have you on again, but I think we've uh, we kicked the proverbial uh, tires on MedMel and business litigation. I mean, we need to stand on We need to get out there and meet business owners because that's probably the way to go if we want to segue into that area. I feel like that's a super interesting area of law and kind of a little bit underserved, to tell you the truth. Again, I, uh, with the reaction you get from the business owners to the concept that someone would work on a contingency, I think it's still to this day and probably will remain that way because of the difficulty of direct marketing, sort of an untapped great opportunity for cases. And I think, again, the takeaway for anybody listening that wants to get into that is you got to go make connections with 
attorneys that are meeting those type of clients in that traditional sense and just put it out there that, hey, I just this will always be your client. I will never, you know, I will represent them in a one-off matter on a contingency basis, but they're always your client. You just look at me or our firm or your firm as another service option that that you can provide that customer to give them the best experience or best um, results possible and make it make it known that that you're out for their best interest. I think that's the best sales point. And as long as you get touches on people and let people know you do that, I have no doubt that, you know, firms can pick up business cases on a contingency basis. Yeah. And I agree that the advertising itself is probably lowbrow for a business owner. Exactly. You see like a volume shopping and be like, eh, how do you even I don't want some ambulance chaser? You know, we have that stereotype and stigma already. Yep. Yep. We have to battle with consumers. They're not going to want to sit there and look at that. And and, and there's so many different, you know, MedMal or car accident or what. I mean, you can slap a big label on it, but how do you just slap on, you know, business litigation? It's just, I don't think it's going to resonate because there's so many different, yeah, a lot of them are breach of contract or some variation of that. But, you know, I just don't think it's going to connect with most business owners. I don't think they'll even listen or, or even hear the commercials, quite frankly. It has to come from someone that they know and trust. The other segue I'll leave you with before we just get off is uh, I'm seeing a lot of uh, plaintiff firms, not a lot, let me rephrase. I'm seeing a few plaintiff firms nationally jump into uh, suing stockbrokers, stockbroker loss cases, which I guess is falls in line with business litigation. It's just another area of business litigation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I there's an area right now that I think could actually, I, I mean, I haven't handled one of these cases yet, but the gist of the case is essentially, you know, some type of class action. I mean, it's more for the consumers, but people who were led to believe they were in high interest bank accounts and the banks don't actually increase your uh, interest rate along, you know, but they're advertising that you're in a high interest bank account, but you don't get the value of that because they don't change the interest rate unless you go back and unilaterally make sure that your money's getting into the high interest account. I think there's a big potential misrepresentation claim there against banks. I mean, I'm sure that they've probably, you know, written in exculpatory clauses and so forth, but, you know, just something to keep in mind, but sort of no, dovetails like a bait with, and switch. Yeah, yeah, but kind of dovetails with all the, uh, the financial advisor type, uh, you know, actions you're talking about. Gotcha. Well, I appreciate your time, Brandon. That was really, uh, it was a pleasure. Oh, thanks, it's guys. Just, it's a great podcast. I've like, enjoyed a ton listening to them. I uh, appreciate you having me on to, to blather on and ramble for a bit. So thanks for hearing me out. It's been great. I wish Pittsburgh a shitty season. I hope they go uh, three and eight or two and nine. <laughs> I kid, by the way. You guys are like the uh, the cornerstone of the ACC now, especially if Clemson leaves and Florida State leaves. I mean, it's just it's Pitt and Miami, and we. It's all going to turn into one, uh, one. I don't know. Uh, two, two. Uh, yeah. Uh, of these uh, super conferences. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, well, you guys are going to be like in the Big Ten, probably, because yeah. that kind of it's just similar. Right. I mean, right. You have, in the you have Rutgers in the Big Ten. Yeah. Exactly. It's better than Rutgers. Yeah. No doubt. So, just my thoughts. We'll see. Well, appreciate having you. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners, and I wish everybody a great day. This episode of David versus Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D-O-L-M-A-N-Law.com. Or call 866-965-6242.
The insights and views presented in David vs. Goliath are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.